Well, the table is set for hearing the parable of the sower. It comes from Mark 4, beginning with the first verse. And then after we have the parable of Jesus, there is an interpretation of the parable. Listen now for this word. Again, Jesus began to teach beside the sea. Such a very large crowd gathered around him that he got into a boat on the sea and sat there while the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. He began to teach them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell on the path and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil and it sprang up quickly since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it and it yielded no grain. Other seed fell into good soil and brought forth grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30 and 60 and a hundredfold. And he said, let anyone with ears to hear listen. Then this is an interpretation of the parable. The sower sows the word. These are the ones on the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. When they hear the word, they immediately receive it with joy. But they have no root and endure only for a while. Then when trouble or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are those sown among the thorns. These are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the lure of wealth and the desire for other things come in and choke the word and it yields nothing. And these are the ones sown on the good soil. They hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. Thirty and sixty and a hundredfold. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you our rock and our salvation. Amen. Two centuries ago, Napoleon Bonaparte said, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. In that same century, philosopher James Allen said this, Jesus was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. 
He grew up in another obscure village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never went to college. He never visited a big city. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things usually associated with greatness. Who was Jesus? Who is Jesus? These are the questions we will explore during this Lenten season as we reflect together on the meaning of Jesus for us, for our faith, and for our world. Each week we will look at a different facet of the jewel of Jesus Christ. Today we begin by looking at the person of Jesus. Who was Jesus? What do we know about him? What is important to know about Jesus? We begin by acknowledging that there are no non-Christian, no secular, contemporary surviving documents from the time of Jesus that say anything about him. The source of what we know about Jesus are ancient documents, primarily the Bible. I say primarily because since 1945, scholars have been studying ancient Christian documents similar to the New Testament, but not found in the New Testament. So far, the New Testament remains the best and fullest source for what we know about the person, the man, Jesus. Recovering the person of Jesus from the New Testament has proved difficult, but not impossible. The difficulty comes from the fact that all of those ancient documents about Jesus were written by persons whose lives had already been changed by Jesus and written considerably after the fact. The earliest versions of the Gospels come from the period of more than 30 years after the death of Jesus. Think about it. Those of us that are old enough to remember 30 years ago, or even 50 years ago, and those of you who are younger who can only remember 5 or 10 or maybe 20 years ago, Think about something that you knew or experienced a long time ago. What can you remember about that? Those of us of a certain age remember significant events like the assassination of John Kennedy or putting a man on the moon or 9-11. But if we had a discussion among us, wouldn't the details of our memories of these world-changing events differ? And we have the advantage of the written word and the recordings of television. The ancients didn't have newspapers or cable TV, and most of them could neither read nor write. Reading the New Testament is like doing archaeology, like digging down through multiple layers of civilization If you stop at one level, you get a picture of that era. But if you want to learn about the earliest civilizations, you have to keep digging and digging and digging. And so it is with the New Testament picture of Jesus. The earliest memories of Jesus are there. Even some of the original teachings of Jesus are there. But only if you peel away the layers of memory that overlay the more ancient ones. 
Archaeology is one image for how to recover the person of Jesus. Another one might be eating a parfait. You know, parfait, you know, is a multi-layered dessert. Something to be preferred to doing archaeological work in the desert, I think. With a parfait, you can pick and choose, eating only the parts of the parfait that you like the best. But if you do that, you miss the whole effect. A parfait is designed to be a multi-flavored dining experience. So also in reading the New Testament, we want to separate out the layers and dig for those parts that are the closest to the life and teachings of Jesus. But if we want to grasp not just who Jesus was, but who Jesus is for us, we want to dig in and get all of those flavors on the spoon all at once. When we read the New Testament, the first words about Jesus that we encounter are those texts which portray Jesus in terms of the well-developed faith of the church that was written down 40 or 50 years after Jesus' death. The temptation story of Jesus is a good example. Matthew, Mark, and Luke each have similar stories of this temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. The story is presented as an account of an event in Jesus' life. But no one was present at the time except Jesus and that devil. So who wrote it down? The story may have been inspired by recollections that Jesus went into retreat at the beginning of his ministry. But the story as we find it in the Gospels also reflects the faith experiences of those who believed in Jesus. Persons who had both come to believe in Jesus' power but people who had also known the agonies and struggles of temptation in their lives. Our text from Colossians is another example. Here we have the remnants of an early Christian hymn that was sung in the church. The author is writing to second or maybe even third generation Christians. The Colossians hymn reads like an affirmation of faith, even a creed for it expresses what Christians believe about Jesus, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God and the head of the body, which is the church. What we find in the Colossians hymn, we found through, find throughout the New Testament, believers talking about Jesus. We find that also in the Gospels, in texts like that portion of the Gospel text that we read today that is known as the interpretation of the parable of the sower. The new Christians of the first century remembered the parable of the sower as told by Jesus, so they felt comfortable inserting their interpretation of that parable into the gospel story immediately after the parable that Jesus tells. And what did those Christians know? They knew what we know today, that some people hear the good news of the word of God and they immediately accept it, while others reject God's word. Then some of those who accept God's word end up falling away, while for others, faith takes root, is nurtured, and grows into mature faith. Scholars have long recognized that those first generations of Christians 
understood their own situations better than they understood the teachings of Jesus and the life of Jesus that occurred 30 years before. Which leads us to the deepest level in the Gospels, the actual words of Jesus. Even that is not the whole picture. No more than finding a few of your childhood report cards or letters from camp reveal who you are. But it is a start. In the case of the parable of the sower, Jesus was not talking about the experiences of people believing in him while others did not. The parable of the sower is a key part of Jesus preaching on the coming kingdom of God. Here again, the parable as it may have been told by Jesus. He said, listen, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell on the path and the birds came and ate them up. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil and they sprang up quickly since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and brought forth grain some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. Let anyone with ears listen. In Jesus' day, farmers sowed their seed and then they plowed it in, just the opposite of what we do today. Now we plow and then put the seeds in. They sowed their seed and then plowed it into the ground. The fields that they had held many rocks, and had hard paths winding through them. So it was not unusual that some of the seeds made it and other seeds were choked out or burned out in the sun. The people who heard Jesus' parable knew this. The point Jesus is making is the marvelous and mysterious comparison between a handful of seed and bushels of wheat. Jesus seems to be saying, listen, God's kingdom is coming and even now it is with us. But what you see now is nothing compared with the kingdom that is yet to come. That is, there is forgiveness for you now, but there's also temptation for you now. We enjoy table fellowship now, but what we enjoy now is only a foretaste of that which is to come. One of the reasons the first generation of Christians sometimes misinterpreted parables like the sower is the same reason that we sometimes distort the teachings of Jesus today. What Jesus taught does not fit with our worldview and usually doesn't fit with our natural inclinations. Jesus says things like, love your enemies and pray for those who would harm you. Who wants to do that? Jesus said, practice unqualified forgiveness. Who can do that? The parable of the sower reminds us that as we study and pray, there is always a tension between what the Bible says about Jesus and what we read the Bible to say about Jesus. As New Testament scholar John Dominic Crossan has said, 
It is not that we find once and for all who the historical Jesus was way back then. It is that each generation and century must redo that historical work and establish its best reconstruction. A reconstruction that will be and must be in some creative interaction with its own particular needs, visions, and programs. Or as the mystic Thomas Akempis wrote nearly 600 years ago in a devotional classic called The Imitation of Christ, whoever would fully and feelingly understand the words of Jesus must endeavor to conform his life wholly to the life of Christ. In other words, we only truly come to know Jesus when our lives begin to be shaped by the life and teachings of Jesus. Or as contemporary writer and preacher Frederick Beekner has written, the Jesus who was is that fathomless, elusive, unpredictable, haunting, and finally unknowable figure who moves through the gospel narratives like a figure in an old newsreel. The Jesus who is, is the one whom we search for even when we do not know that we are searching and hide from even when we do not know that we are hiding. We want then to know who Jesus was in order to discover who we might yet become. We want to know how Jesus lived to find out how we are called to live. Who was Jesus? In her autobiographical book, A Sunday in the 30s, Barbara Hinchcliffe writes about her Uncle Frank, a New York City atheist whose gorgeous Mexican mistress always kept trying to win him back to faith. Frank resisted, but along the way he provided the trigger word, All I know about Jesus, he said, all I know about Jesus is he never used a gun. He had no use for money. He never burned anyone at the stake. And by God, he never turned his back on anybody. That, my friends, is who Jesus was. And if you would truly know Jesus... By God's grace, seek to conform your life to the life of Christ. Let anyone with ears to hear listen. Amen. 